Well, let's pray together before we open God's Word. Heavenly Father, I do come before you this morning, Lord, grateful for the opportunity to open your Word for these, your people. Lord, I pray that your Word will touch the hearts that you've got in this room today, Lord, exactly as you intend it to do. I thank you, Lord, that despite my weaknesses, your Word is strong. And your word never returns void. So Lord, today, I thank you for this message. And I thank you for the opportunity to share it. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Colossians. For those of you who may not be as up to speed on this, the elders teach through an off book. While Travis preaches most weeks, we jump in every now and then. And we preach through an off book. So for about the last, what, 20 years we've been working through Colossians? (laughs) That's, that's how it works, right? But when we only do it once a quarter, it takes a little bit of time. But it gives you a lot to stew on. There's a lot to think about, right? So let's talk about the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is a book that the Holy Spirit, through Paul, uses to teach us how we are to live as believers. It starts very broad, and like a funnel, as he goes on, he, he narrows his focus. Narrows it, narrows it, narrows it. Right? The last time I taught... We talked about, there was a little more narrowing, and we talked about how we are to interact as a body, right? As God's chosen, holy, beloved people, as a church. In our passage this morning, he's going to continue to to refine that, focus that funnel a little bit more, and we're going to talk about our roles as members of families, right? He's going to bring that focus into the families. So I taught last time. So you might be saying to yourself, if you're one of those people that keep up with such things, why is he back up there? The reason I'm back up here is because Travis said, of the elders, you've been married the longest. You've made the most mistakes. You have the most for us to learn from. And every bit of that was true. I couldn't argue it. So here I am. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians 3. And let's read verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1 together. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So let's begin by looking at Paul's instruction to wives. Throughout this passage, we're going to come across some things that can be a bit sensitive. And uh, this is one of them, right? The Holy Spirit's going to begin his lesson through Paul with a very sensitive topic. And that is the hierarchy of the home. In Scripture, God clearly establishes the man as the leader of the family with all the accountability and responsibility associated with the role of a leader. In this passage, God is giving a very clear 
command. It's not optional. It is a command to wives to submit to their husband's leadership. As a man, I'm very grateful for that. But it's not that easy, is it? Submit is a term that may cause some of us to want to recoil a bit, maybe. Right? But it doesn't change the term. That's the term that was used. But what I would like to do is point out something about that term and where it's used and how it's used. The first thing I want to point out is that in this verse, wives are called to submit. In the verses we're going to look at on children and bond servants, the command is not to submit. The command is to obey. Two different words, two different meanings. Douglas Moo, in the commentary on this book, does a good job of explaining the differences. I'm going to read that to you. Obedience naturally fits a situation in which orders are being issued and and in which the party obeying has little choice in the matter. That's to obey. Submission, on the other hand, suggests a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. That's what happens in a Christian marriage. The man puts himself in submission to Christ. The wife puts herself in submission to the husband, trusting that he is going to love her as Christ loved his church. Piper summarizes the role of submission well when he says, Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. The key to biblical submission is for both the husband and the wife to grasp that the purpose of their marriage is the glory of God. When a man and a woman both hold the glory of God as their supreme purpose, they then become husband and wife, their marriage will reflect that same goal, the glory of God. They both understand their roles and responsibilities. And they will have an agreed upon set of goals and priorities with Christ at the center of all of those. When they both live according to the word of God, they're in joyful agreement about the arrangement and how their relationship is ordered. When they can both be confident that they are both living for Christ... It is not a challenge for each of them to slip into their assigned roles. The husband is the leader, the wife as his invaluable, irreplaceable helper. The next thing I want to point out about this verse is that God's command for wives to submit to their husbands does not mean that men are superior to women in the eyes of God. It simply delineates roles. Leadership is a huge responsibility that God gives to men, one that is both daunting and humbling. A wise man will quickly recognize that he is not capable of fulfilling everything God requires of him on his own. That wise man will recognize that the wife God has blessed him with is there to help him. He will nourish her, he will cherish her, and he will work in tandem with her to glorify God in their lives. However, whether the husband is wise or not, 
the wife is called to submit to her husband. And the next sentence says, as is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord is a qualifier. So what we do is have to ask ourselves, what does it mean? Again, I turn to Douglas Moo. To submit is to recognize a relationship of order established by God. But submission to any human is always conditioned by the ultimate submission that each believer owes to God. In any hierarchy we can imagine, God stands at the top of the chart. This means then that a wife will sometimes have to disobey a husband, even a Christian one, if that husband commands her to do something contrary to God's will. Even as she disobeys, however, she can continue to submit, in a sense, by recognizing that her husband remains her head, just not her ultimate head. So what makes it, what, what makes it difficult for Christian wives to submit to their husbands? It goes way back. Right? It goes way back to the beginning. In Genesis 3.16, we read about the curse, one of the curses, God placed on woman for her role in ushering sin into our world. What did he say? Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. From the very beginning, as a result of the fall, it has been difficult for a woman to submit to her husband. Women, if it's difficult for you, now you know why. It's just it's the nature that we have since the fall. Submission can be scary, right? Men, we have people we submit to also, don't we? We got a lot of military guys in here. You have people you have to submit to. Sometimes it's men, sometimes it's women, right? When you get a new commander, it can be a little bit nerve-wracking sometimes, right? What's this person going to be like? It's a scary thing to be submissive. And unfortunately, men, there's a whole lot that we do that make it even harder. Sometimes, some of our actions make it more difficult for our wives to willing to submit to us than it needs to be. So I'm going to go over a couple of those, right? Like I said, I've been married for 30 years. I have learned from my mistakes. Sometimes. My son can tell you that doesn't always happen, but sometimes. So I made a list of things that I have found, and I also didn't do this on my own. I reached out to a couple of godly ladies and said, tell me what makes it difficult for you to submit to your husband. So there's a lot of advice here that you need to hear. First, a pattern of sinning. When a wife sees her husband, who she believes to be a believer, enter into a pattern of consistent and repetitive sin, it's scary. This man that she married, believing to be a servant of God, is not walking with him. She's going to struggle to submit in that situation. Men, we're all going to sin. Don't let it become a pattern in practice. Strive constantly not to set the pattern of sin in your life. And when you sin, let your wife hear you repent of it. Let her know that you still desire to serve God above all else. Second, indifference. When a husband fails to factor his wife's thoughts and considerations into decision making, it's not going to go well. How about a failure to communicate? When a husband fails to communicate with his wife, she, he leaves her to make decisions in a void. They're probably not going to be all the decisions you would like them to be. 
She's not trying to be rebellious. She's trying to fill the gap. You left. Communicate with your wives. And the fourth one, and guys, we bring this on ourselves. Marrying an unbeliever. We are warned against this in the Bible where God tells us that we should not be unequally yoked. In today's society, and I'm speaking to some young men here, right? Men who aren't yet married. In today's society, the push is to remove men from leadership, right? We want to replace them with women because that makes things fair or better or whatever other political reason there might be for that, right? If you marry a woman who is not a believer, who is raised in that culture, guess how well she's going to do at submitting to you. So don't go there. Men, if you're looking for a wife, make sure first and foremost that she loves the Lord above all things and that she's willing to serve Him. That's going to help. That's the type of lady that's going to be willing to submit to your godly leadership as a husband. Next, let's look at the Holy Spirit's instructions to husbands. So in the very next verse, God gives husbands a command. Let's look at verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There's our commandment. Remember, notice he doesn't say, hey, husbands, I recommend. He says simply, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. So what does it look like? Right? If I did a poll in here, I'm sure we'd have a hundred different answers. But I found one I liked from a source very close to all of us. Um, when it comes to how we should love our wives, in a pre- previous sermon on Ephesians, our very own Pastor Travis had some words of wisdom. And he defined love this way. Love is a deep and abiding commitment to do another person good, even when this is costly to the one loving. Love includes deep affection and caring. It can be emotionally high and powerful, but emotion is never at the core of love. Love is primarily the willingness to lay down your life like Jesus in order to do another person true good. Travis goes on to tell us what love for our wives looks like practically when he explains true good. I'm going to quote him again. In this understanding of love, you must know what is true good. What is the greatest good? The greatest good that we can do for another person is to help them see the glory of God. Participating in the glorifying of God and to find our way in the God who made us. If I do you good, I point you to Jesus. If I do you good, I help you love him and serve him. If I do you good, I turn you from sin. Sometimes this is comfortable and sometimes it's not. But love lays down one's own life to do others genuine, biblical good. I believe Travis has nailed exactly how we are to behave as husbands. Are we perfect at it, wives? Raise your hand if your husband's perfect at it. Yeah, I don't see a lot of hands, guys. Right? I do see, I do see uh, Travis holding Mitzi's down, but the rest of us, <laughs> we're, we're not so good at it, right? If we live like this, wives, would it be easier for you to submit to us? If you knew that our whole life's purpose was to glorify God, 
and help you glorify God? Would it be easier for you to submit to us than it is if we're living differently? So thank you, Travis, for great insight. Now, men, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you all know the value of your wives, right? They're very valuable to us. I am very grateful for mine. But Adam, I think, probably more than any of the rest of us, had the best understanding of the value of a wife. Because remember, Adam spent some time without another human being, right? Adam was alone for a while. And God did Adam a favor. Before he gave him a wife, he made it very clear to him by showing him, there's not another helper fit for you. He brought all the animals back in front of him, right? And he looked at all of them and he gave them all names. And he understood very clearly, there's nobody here like me, right? I don't have someone. So when God created woman, Adam was pretty thrilled, right? The verses tell us that he cherished her and he celebrated her. He finally had a fitting helper. Men, your wives are truly a gift from God. Don't fail to let them know how valuable they are to you. And not just on their birthdays and anniversaries. It should be a daily thing that your wife knows how valuable she is to you. I've failed there. But I'm warning all of you guys, especially you who haven't been married as long as me, fail less. You're still going to do it. I'm sorry, you're still going to fail for your wife to know how valuable she is to you. But do less of it than I did, right? Strive to make sure your wife knows every day how valuable she is to you. God has given you somebody different yet complimentary. Someone to point you to Christ. Someone to join you in celebrating Christ and the ability for you to find your joy together in Him. That is valuable. There is no doubt from Genesis that from the very beginning, God established the man as the leader. That is the man's role. Therefore, as leaders, we need to pay attention to how we go about leading. And that means that we also need to pay attention to how we are not to go about leading. And God, in his wisdom, gave us the answer to that in the very, in this same verse, right? He tells us the first mistake to avoid is being harsh with our wives. God's direction not to be harsh with our wives, again, is not a suggestion about how we can live well together. It's a command. Men, you are not to be harsh with your wives. If you are harsh, then you are belittling them and you are hurting them. Being harsh with your wife does not establish your leadership. It makes you a bully. If you are being harsh with your wife, you are sinning. Stop doing it. In a word to wives, if your husband is being physically abusive with you, do not just take it. Call the authorities. This church will stand behind you. Your husband is sinning, he's hurting you, and it's not okay. Don't live with it. Men, rather than being harsh with your wives, we are called to love them as Christ loved his church. So, how did Christ love his church? There's some characteristics that we've read previously in this chapter, 
And I'm going to show you how some of those applied to how Christ loved his church, right? One of the things we read about in Colossians 12 through 14 was being compassionate, having compassionate hearts. We also learned about patience. Christ demonstrated his patience for his church when he came alongside his, his apostles when they couldn't understand the parables, right? He was patient with them. He explained them to him. He also was forgiving, as demonstrated when he forgave Peter after his denial three times. He met their needs, as demonstrated by providing the Holy Spirit. In short, there's a lot of these characteristics that we read about in Colossians 3, 12 to 14, that apply to how we should love our wives. We need to be compassionate. We need to be kind. We need to be humble. We need to be meek and patient. We need to exercise forgiveness. And above all else, we need to practice love, which binds a husband and wife together in perfect harmony to the glory of God. These two commands, the command for a wife to submit to her husband and the command for a husband to love his wife should never be separated. They are interdependent. And as one is practiced, it encourages and enables the practice of another. And together, they are intertwined and they continue to grow stronger and stronger and, grow and develop support from one another as they grow heavenly or heavenward toward God. Never separate those commands. Next, we're going to move on to God's command to children and fathers. So in commanding us on how we should live as families, God did not skip our children. So children, listen up. This is for you. It's simple. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Parents, they just heard it. Everything, right? They are to obey you in everything. Children, you're saying to yourself, but I'm smarter than them. <laughs> you're not, right? You may think it now. When you get a little bit over, you'll realize just exactly how smart your parents are. But let me point, this, let me point something out here. This passage applies to both parents, right? And I bring this up because I've seen this happen before. And it's actually happened in my own home. And I want to warn other parents about this, right? When your children see one of two things, it's going to cause frustration for them. First, if you have two different sets of rules, right? Mom has her rules, dad has his rules, right? And the children are confused about which ones they're supposed to follow, right? Or if you are together and you have one set of rules, do you enforce it the same way? If you don't, you're setting your children up for failure. Get on the same page. That is how you can avoid frustrating your children. Children, your parents are not perfect. Most of them would probably be the first to tell you that. But they desire to see you love the Lord and serve Him with your whole life. That's what their parenting is designed to do. And that is why you should obey them in everything. Your parents love you. They desire to see you grow in your knowledge and wisdom of the Lord. They want to see you serve Him well. They want to see you know the love of Christ. They want to see you know Him as your Savior. 
Obey them in everything because their motivation is your well-being. But there's also a second motivation, and Paul supplies that for us here when he says, because doing so pleases the Lord. Now, I found that pretty interesting, right? It wasn't, it wasn't do so because God said so. It was do so because it pleases the Lord. We don't please the Lord to earn His favor. We please the Lord because we are grateful for what it has done for us. We, pre- we please Him because we want to show Him how grateful we are for the gift He's given us in salvation. So understanding that, understanding, children, that your obedience pleases God, do it a lot. Please Him as often as you possibly can. So men, there's more instruction for us here too. Paul tells us, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So how do we avoid that? Right? How do we avoid provoking our children? Men, he's talking to us here. We avoid frustrating our children by fulfilling our fatherly responsibilities. As men, we have a lot of responsibilities, right? But what I'm going to focus on here is our responsibility as a father. First, pray for your children. Dads, it is your role to pray for your children. Please do not think to yourself, ah, my wife is a better nourisher than I am. That's a great role for her to have. You're right, it is. Mothers, pray for your children too. But fathers, do not neglect your responsibility here. Pray for your children. Pray for them and pray with them. Let your children see you come humbly before God and thank Him for the gift of salvation. Let them see you come before Him and express your humble reliance on Him for your daily bread. Let them see you repent for the times that you fail to live up to the standard God has set for you as a godly man, husband, and father. Let them see that praying is something you hold in high regard. That's how we start living a life that won't frustrate our children. A second responsibility, training. We do it constantly, right? We're teaching our children constantly, whether we're speaking or whether they're just watching what we do. We're constantly teaching. Now, when our children are young, it's a little bit easier. You do this. They do it, right? Or there's consequences for it. As they get older, we've got to evolve the way that we train, right? I can't tell Noah, do this or else. Because he's a big boy. (laughs) He'd be like, so what else, right? Not what I'm looking for, right? Not going to accomplish that. Now, if I need to know how to do something, I will ask him to do it, and I may have to explain the why, because he asks me that a lot. Why? Right? <laughs> There's nothing wrong with giving your children the why. It does not dishonor you, Dad, to explain to your children why you want them to do things. God does it for us. He does it for us in His Word. Why wouldn't we do it for our children? Why would you not do something that would prevent frustrating your children? God told you not to. It wasn't a suggestion. 
He said, don't. When you take the time to share the why, your children understand the value of what it is you're asking them to do. That's going to help them grow. That's going to avoid frustration. And finally, the third responsibility, we are to set the standard for faithful living. When your children see you translate your faith into obedience and gratitude, they realize that your faith is a very real thing. When they see you living up to the standards that you're holding them to, they take those standards to be legitimate. Fathers, when your sons and daughters see you loving your wife in the way you lead and respect her, in response, your wife is submitting to your leadership, they see that you are both living according to the Word of God, where He says, be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Remember what our primary goal as parents is, to glorify God, to show our children the love, mercy, and kindness of God. If we are frustrating them, we can't do that. In fact, often children will revolt against that. Be careful not to frustrate your children. Now, a final word on this topic. Men, let me me make it very clear. I'm not saying that you set aside your authority when it comes to dealing with your children. What I'm saying is you practice it with patience, kindness, humility, and love. That's how you can be effective in not frustrating your children. As Christian fathers, we are responsible for raising up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, not of ourselves. If that's what you're doing, you're on the wrong path. You need to get lined up. Next, we're going to move on to instructions to bond servants. So let's look at verses 22 and 23. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So the term bond servant comes from the Greek word doulos which refers to, and I'm quoting the Gospel Transformation Study Bible here, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, giving his wages that he had been saved by the master and officially declared a freedman. Bond service typically entered into that role out of desperation. They had financial obligations they couldn't meet, and they, were, they entered into this relationship in order to clear that debt and be able to start over. It was not an easy lifestyle. They never got to put themselves first. They always had to take care of their masters and, their, and obey all of their, and complete all their duties before they could do anything for themselves. It was a very tough way to live. But what's important here is that we remember who these people were. Their station in life was that of a bondservant. But that's not who they were. Who they are is the people Paul is writing this book to. They are believers in Christ. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. It doesn't matter what you do. 
what matters. And men and women, we need to treat each other not based on what you do, right? There's a lot of prestige in different jobs, right? When I told people I was a police captain, they, you can almost see the flip in their eyes, right? When Jason tells somebody he's a firefighter captain, you can see the flip, right? That's a respectable job, right? But you know what? It's just a job. It's not who we are. Who we are is God's beloved children. Remember that. If you have a tendency to let somebody's title impress you, remember who you are. The child of the king of kings. Not to compare yourself to them, but to keep in mind that you have been blessed and that everybody you're speaking to was created in the image of God and you want to treat them in a way that honors them regardless of their position in life or regardless of their role. God's chosen ones are all created in his his image and they are all of equal worth regardless of their role in life. Verse 23 tells Paul's audience that whatever they do, they are to work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The principle Paul is calling us here to here, and notice I said us, right? It still applies today, is regardless of title or the role of the person being addressed, we are to do everything for the purpose of bringing glory to God. Thus, Paul is encouraging those believers in the role of bondservants to work as unto the Lord, to serve their earthly masters as they do their heavenly master, which means that their effort was to come from the heart, which meant that it was done with an attitude of gratefulness to God for what he had done for them in salvation. They were to work hard, doing their best at whatever they did, and not need to be forced to work well. This same principle applies to us today. No matter where you live, no matter what you're called to do, you should do it to the glory of God. Now, I don't know, because I'm not aware of a verse that confirms it, but I truly believe that a Christian bondservant could have the same impact on his unsaved master that a Christian wife could have on her unsaved husband. Because when an unsaved person sees a believer living the life God has called them to live, it can't help but impact their heart. So regardless of role, regardless of your station in life, live for the glory of God. Let your life shine His light. That's what I want to focus on here in this role. So, knowing that God provides us with the why, and knowing how much I like to look for it, based on the last servant, I found it here. Knowing that what he is asking is difficult, in verse 24, God provides the why that motivates the reader to comply with his instruction. And here's what he says. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So knowing... Knowing, in this sentence, is a word of certainty. Paul is assuring those that are struggling with a difficult wife, husband, child, or master that they can be certain of the next words he's going to say. And what are the next words he says? Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. This is not a verse to support the idea of earning your way to heaven. You don't earn an inheritance, right? I looked it up 
I read about what an inheritance back then was like, right? How it worked. And it's actually a very significant experience in the lives of people back there, probably even more so than it is now for us. Because what happened back then, they had laws and rules and everything just like we do that regulated it. But what happened was a father, when he would die, immediately his possessions, farm, land, everything, right, was equally shared among the male children of his family, with the exception of one, the eldest, who got a double portion. This inheritance, right, that was given to these sons was not something they earned. It was a gift from a loving father who spent his life working hard and saving to provide it for them. There's nothing that any of them did to earn it. Now, Douglas Moo explains the inheritance of believers, right, which is who Paul's talking to. That's the inheritance we're talking about here. He explains it this way. In the New Testament, therefore, the inheritance is the kingdom of God or salvation. So that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about salvation. And if you are a child of God here today, if you are trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, you're one of those heirs, a co-heir with Christ. You will inherit the kingdom of God. Is that not exciting? Not a person in a room jumping up and down. Did I put you guys to sleep? (laughs) The inheritance is ours guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. You can't lose it. The inheritance is yours. You did nothing to earn it. It is a gift from a loving father, just like back in the days of old. Now, if you are not trusting Jesus alone for your salvation and you're here today, you are not a co-heir with Christ. What you are is an unforgiven sinner who will one day stand before a perfectly holy and righteous God and have the burden of your sins to answer for. And your answer will not be sufficient. But by the grace of God, you are here today. You are hearing the gospel taught. There are a lot of other men and women in this room who understand this very well. If this applies to you, find somebody to talk to. We want to make sure that you have a chance to clearly understand these things before you leave this place today. So as we continue in our verse this morning, we read, You are serving the Lord Christ. And this is a gracious and inspiring sentence. And I know I'm going long. I'm going to try to pick it up. Paul's reminding his readers that Jesus is the one they are working for, not man. Now, believers, this is where the why comes in again, right? This is the next why statement. We work because we are serving the Lord Christ. So when you have somebody that's tough to work for, remember why you're doing it. Look for opportunities to honor God in the work that you're doing. Verse 25 continues with the why when he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Paul is talking about the fact that wrongdoers will pay for their sins. And it doesn't matter whether you're the master or the bondservant. There is no difference with God. His justice will be complete. Now, it seems like this might be an encouragement for you, right? If you're one of those people who has one of those bosses, it's kind of comforting to know he's going to get his in the end, isn't it? (laughs) Don't let yourself get there, right? Understand that that person, if they don't know Christ, 
Consider what it is they're heading for and let that dictate how you're going to interact with them. Right? We need to be doing everything we can to prevent people from going where that person's heading. Live a life that honors and glorifies God. Consider where they're heading and do something to try to turn them around. So next we're going to move on to instructions to masters. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. You may have noticed a pattern here. Every single time Paul gives instructions to anybody, wives, children, bondservants, guess who else he gives it to? The men. The man of the house is constantly addressed every single time. Why? Because we have a critical role in helping them achieve what he's calling them to do. That's our responsibility. Men, we are the God-ordained leaders of our homes, and as such, we bear the responsibilities for our households. John MacArthur said in his book on leadership, the leadership role is a spiritual responsibility, and the people we lead are a stewardship from God, cuts his part, for which we will one day be called to give an account. Our leadership of our households is the most important role we have, and that's why the Holy Spirit, working through Paul, gives this final command to masters. We are to justly and fairly treat everybody that falls within our sphere of influence. It's not always easy. Believing men, God-fearing men, are not always going to be perfect at this. But that's what we need to strive for. And we do it by always letting the fact that the people we're interacting with are made in the image of God when it comes to how we decide how we're going to interact with them. Remember who you're dealing with. This person, whether you personally like them or not, is made in the image of God. And your responsibility is to reflect the love of God to them. So we're all working for the day when we will hear our master say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, this was a long lesson. There were a lot of instructions to a lot of people. And Lord, I pray that you will put it on our hearts. Lord, show us where we can honor you with the way that we interact with the members of our households. In Jesus' name, amen.